We turn in God's Word again this evening to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. As we've just sung about the tidings of comfort and joy, we find in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 Paul's joy and Paul's comfort as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, we'll begin reading at verse 2, and we'll be reading through verse 16. Let us hear God's very word. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with a great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort in all our affliction. I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice. Not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. See, foresee what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. Besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boast I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true, and his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice, because I have complete confidence in you. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. Let's again bow in prayer. Father, as we have read your Word, Lord, this is somewhat an obscure passage. It's not one of those that perhaps we memorize on a regular basis. It's not one of those chapters, or does it even contain a verse, perhaps, that that we have ever committed to memory, and yet this, too, is your Word. It is your Word to us. It is your Word spoken in truth. And it is your word, Father, that you desire for us to not only hear, but to live by. It is a word, Father, of comfort for us in this evening hour as well. And so may it accomplish in our hearts that for which you have given it. In Christ's name, God's people say, Amen. 
Three things in regards to this particular passage. One, just a a very quick review uh, for those of you who perhaps were not here last Sunday night, those of you who are visitors or guests with us, and that's in regard to the Corinthian letter that brought a response. The Corinthian letter brought a response. Secondly, that worldly grief produces death. Worldly grief produces death. And then thirdly, that godly grief brings repentance and that which flows from it. First of all, then, just sort of a review that the Corinthian letter brought a response. Paul had written to this church at at Corinth uh, on the previous occasion. That's the first letter. And in that letter, he pointed out their sin. He was did not mince words. He did not draw back, whether it had to do with the discipline that they needed to to put into place, whether it was in regards to the practices of worship, whether it was their false beliefs, or most certainly their own human pride and of putting themselves before other members of the church. Paul did not mince words, and he pointed out that sin. That sin in their hearts and in their lives that Paul calls attention to has been repented of. That's why there is joy in Paul's heart. That's why this section is called Paul's joy. Because the letter was sent, Paul wasn't sure what happened. Titus went there. Titus found out that the Corinthians got Paul's first letter. They heard it as the word of God. They repented of of their sins. Titus has brought that message back to Paul. Paul now is filled with comfort. So the letter that caused grief, the letter that caused heartache, the letter that opened up, that that word of God that is that sharp two-edged sword that pierces, but also cuts out the cancer, cuts out the sin, was indeed at work. So they received Paul's letter. They repented of their sin. They turned from their sinful practices and mindset. That's evidenced, Paul says. By the way, one, you treated Titus. It's also evidence that Titus has come back and said, you've changed practices, you've changed your views on things and and gotten them in line with true biblical doctrine. You've changed practices in your own life. You're not in that judging mode anymore against one another, but you are now in that mode where love is indeed the greatest of the gifts. So Paul sees the evidence in the life of the Corinthians itself. It's not just a repentance spoken. It is a repentance that has been been acted upon. And therefore, Paul speaks of the comfort that he now has. He, He was worried about how this letter was going to be received and what was going to happen. But now that he sees the results, Paul steps back from it and he says, Oh, I am in so much comfort because I see the work of the gospel in your hearts and in your lives. It brings us to that 10th verse where Paul then distinguishes for us the difference between what could be considered worldly grief and godly grief. He states it this way in the 10th verse, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. See, we tend to like to end things on a positive, upbeat note. Let's start with the second of those phrases first. 
that worldly grief brings death. What does Paul mean by that? Does it mean that worldly grief brings death? So first of all, I want to just deal with the terms worldly grief and death. What what, What does Paul mean by those terms here in this passage? And then secondly, to give you at least three biblical examples where we see that in action, where we see that worldly grief did indeed bring about a type of death. First of all, when Paul says worldly grief, what he means by that is this, and this is what you may need to write down. Worldly grief is a remorse that seeks man's solutions. Man's work, man's pardon. In other words, it is the recognition that something has been done wrong. It is remorse. It is a recognition of wrong actions. It might even be, and we can even use the word, it is the recognition of sin. But what one does with that remorse is one turns either inward to find the solution for that sin in oneself, or one looks to other people. Or one looks to shift the blame to other people. One will acknowledge that one has done wrong, but they did wrong because so-and-so did this. Because so-and-so said this about me, I put this on my Twitter account. Because so-and-so says this about me, I respond. Now, I know I shouldn't do that, but they're really the ones at fault. So it's the idea of accepting blame, accepting responsibility, but shifting it ultimately to other people, to other circumstances, and seeking to find the solution for that which has been caused either inward or in the heart and life of another person. That is what Paul means here by worldly grief. Paul says that type of grief brings death. And death here can be thought of in the literal. It can be thought of in terms of, yes, that kind of sorrow produces a certain death within one's heart, within one's life. And a couple of the examples I'll give in a few minutes show even that this kind of godly, this kind of lack of godly grief brought about their physical death. I think Paul is looking not only bigger than that, he, he's looking at the fact that that in in sort of in opposite of the comfort and joy that he is experiencing at the Corinthians' godly grief, I think the death here is to be understood more in terms of, a, you know, godly or worldly grief, worldly sorrow. Instead of bringing comfort and joy, brings despair, brings an emptiness, brings unresolved conflict, brings guilt, brings bitterness. 
as well as a spiritual death as well. No one can ever be saved by worldly grief. Salvation is not found in simply being remorseful, sorry for one's poor choices, sorry for one's sins, but then seeks those solutions either in oneself or in other people. Now let me give you three examples of that, biblical examples. Two out of the Old Testament. The first one would be Esau. Esau is an example of someone who made a very poor choice in life. And and the, the reference I'll use is not the one out of Genesis, but turn to the book of Hebrews. Turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 12. Okay, pick it up at verse 15. I've heard Bibles stop now. So Hebrews 12:15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. Now what did Esau do? that the author of Hebrews is saying is unholy. What he did was he sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent though he sought it with tears. That, my friends, would be an example of worldly grief that brought about death. Esau recognized the foolishness of his selling his birthright for a bowl of porridge, bowl of stew. You know, I'm sure it wasn't long after that event that that Esau is going, silly me. That wasn't very smart of me, was it? So my birthright. Man, my bowl of stew is gone and so is my birthright. But it really doesn't dawn on him. It really doesn't hit him until he comes in before his father. He says, Father, isn't there a blessing yet for me? There's nothing left. The book of Hebrews says, at that point, afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Was he sorry? (laughs) Was he remorseful? Yeah. Even recognizes that what he has done is sin in the sight of God. What's the problem? The problem is, is that's worldly grief. He's seeking 
the blessing from his father. Notice what he isn't doing. He isn't going to the Lord. He isn't repenting of the fact that I sold my birthright. I should not have done such. He's sorrowful and remorseful that he's getting no blessing. And he's got to live life with, without that blessing of his father. It has everything to do with the horizontal. and has nothing to do with the vertical. Or we can go okay, to the book of 1 Samuel. We'll take you there. 1 Samuel. We'll go to chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15. This is during the reign of King Saul. Saul has been given specific instructions as to what he is to do in this battle with the Amalekites. Saul does not follow the word of the Lord. He does not listen to the instructions. He spares some of the animals. You you know the account. He then gets confronted in verses 22 and 23 by Samuel. Samuel confronts him with his sin. Okay? End of that is, but you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words. Because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow down before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Paul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to the Lord, has turned the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. And he said, I have sinned. This is Saul again. I have sinned. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. Samuel turned back to Saul and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, bring me here Agag, the king of the Amalekites. You know what follows. He continues, he, he executes Agag. Pick it up at verse 35. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. And the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? It's a fascinating study, is it not, in repentance? He says all the right words. He's got the line. I have sinned against the Lord. But the Lord says, not buying it. Not accepting it. You say, well, why didn't he accept it? Because as you follow through, look at what Saul does. Samuel, you pardon me. And even after the word of the Lord has come to him, what does he do? He rips that garment of Samuel. I'm unwilling to accept the word of the Lord. I'm unwilling to accept God's judgment. 
See, this is not the heart of a truly repentant person. This is not the heart of an individual who says, I have sinned and I deserve everything that I have been given. Yes, I've sinned, but can't you come with me, Samuel, so I still look good in sight of the people? I have rejected him. Worldly grave brings death. Where does this all lead to Saul? in Saul's life. In Saul's life, it leads to this rejection, it leads to this this evil spirit that continues to haunt him, this the the bitterness in his heart, the despair, the emptiness, the guilt. Until he dies by his own hand on a battlefield. Or think of the New Testament example. You're probably ahead of me already, right? The New Testament example would be Judas. Takes the money that he has been given. Throws it. Utter rejection. I renounce, I reject this money. I don't want this money. In essence, he is saying, I have sinned. I have done wrong. What is my solution? What is my solution for the wrong that I have done? How do I right the wrong that I have done? He's admitting he's a sinner. He's admitting he has done a sinful, shameful, hideous act. What does he do? Buys a field. Goes out to that field and hangs himself. That's his solution. Worldly grief brings death. Worldly grief can never save. Worldly grief never brings salvation. But godly grief brings repentance. Let's go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and then I'll provide you with one example as well from the New Testament of this in in the context of Christmas as well. Godly grief brings repentance. What is the distinction here? Well, godly grief is a grief that acknowledges the sin is against God against His holiness, against His law. And it's a turning from that sin and a turning from the Lord, or to the Lord. See, the problem that you see in Esau and Saul and Judas is this. They see their sin and they turn from it. But they turn to a solution and in a direction that does not bring life. Godly grief is an acknowledgement of sin and a turning completely from that sin to the only name, to the only place where salvation can be found. Esau doesn't go there. Saul doesn't go there. Judas doesn't go there. 
the shepherds do. They are so filled with fear. They recognize their sinfulness. They recognize the fact that they are unclean men. The presence of the angels who have the glory of God. Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that the Lord has done. You see, they recognize their sin. And what do they do? They turn from it and they go to Christ. That is godly grief that produces repentance that leads to salvation. Let me highlight three things about this godly grief bringing repentance. One, even as we have already read, this leads to salvation. Paul, it's interesting, Paul rarely uses this term, repentance. He only uses it four times. In all the letters, in all the works that that Paul writes of the New Testament, he only uses that term four times. He only uses the phrase to repent one time. So in Paul's writing, okay, that, that idea of repentance only comes about five times. And that's because in Paul's writing, there is something that, that is synonymous with repentance. For Paul, what is synonymous with repentance is faith or belief. To believe is to repent and come to Christ. They are both. They are both aspects. It is for Paul to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ is to repent of one's sin and to come to Christ. And it is that kind of repentance. It is that repentance of a godly, heartfelt sorrow for sin that one acknowledges and realizes that one has sinned against an almighty, holy God and that there are no excuses. There's a no but, yeah but. Or it's because of. It is simply the acknowledgement, I have sinned and that is it. But the solution then is found in believing, in coming to faith, in coming to the one who has come in order to deliver us from our sins. Of realizing that our deliverance from sin is not passing the blame to someone else. That our deliverance from sin is not found in some excuse of, well, I I, I just am kind of prone to that particular sin. Or, you know, I, I have a weakness there for that sin. No, it's an acknowledgement that I have sinned. And fallen short of the glory of God. And that the only place to go is to Christ. For Paul, godly grief brings repentance that leads to salvation. Turn to the Gospel according to Mark. First chapter. Mark chapter 1.
It's interesting that in the Gospel of Mark, the first words of Jesus in his public ministry are recorded for us. Go down to verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Now what is the gospel of God? What is the good news? Okay, gospel, good news. So Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming, proclaiming, preaching the good news, the gospel. And now we have the quote. This is the good news. This is the gospel that Jesus proclaimed. First words of ministry. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. See, we make much of Christmas, don't we? We spend a whole month, month and a half, dealing with this subject. I think our hymn books, and I think that's probably true of every denomination, probably include more Christmas songs than any other subject of Jesus' life, including his death and resurrection. But we need to realize that what we encounter in the manger of Bethlehem is this message. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent. Turn from your sin. Turn from your wickedness. Turn from your evil ways. Turn. Repent from it. Acknowledge that you are a sinner. What does Bethlehem cause us to do? It ought to first and foremost cause us to repent. That's why those shepherds are fearful. They recognize their need to repent. And so they go to Bethlehem to see this good news that God has brought. And it is that kind of godly grief that leads to a repentance that leads to salvation. So many don't even have time to come to worship today. Don't even have time. And the message, oh, they've been at Christmas parties, they've brought gifts, they've had big meals, they've sent Christmas cards, but they have ignored the glorious truth that this event brings. Repent and believe the gospel. The very first message of Christmas is brought to those shepherds and it points them point blank. It, 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 it makes them squarely face their sin. My friends, tonight, as we draw to the close of, of this Lord's Day, as we draw to the close another Christmas season, I hope you hear voice of the baby of Bethlehem. I hope you hear the voice of Christ, the Son of God, 
His voice is calling out, Repent! You believe the Gospel. Notice what Paul says in regards to that as you go back to chapter 7. This leads, you see, to no regrets. This leads to no regrets. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. I suppose it's happened time in history, but I have never read a story where it has been recorded. And I have never been at the bedside of a dying believer in Christ who looks at me and he says, Pastor, I regret every day that I have been a Christian. I've never met a person on their deathbed who says, I regret that I gave my life to Jesus Christ. I regret that I confess my faith in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. There are no regrets, you see, for those who come with godly grief and who find salvation. There's no regret. Oh, people have other regrets as they come to the close of life. Words not spoken, times not spent. A legacy perhaps unfulfilled, but no Christian ever regrets repenting and believing the Gospel. And you see, Paul says, I see the evidences of that in you in the Corinthians for I see the earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. Godly grief not only brings salvation, not only brings no regrets, but it produces an earnestness, a diligence of sincerity. Not a lethargy, not an idleness. That's what, that's what Paul accused them of in 1 Corinthians. But Paul says, I see what repentance is bearing fruit in. I see the fruit that repentance is bearing. I see the earnestness. I see the eagerness that you have. The eagerness to serve the Lord. An eagerness to live in obedience to the truth of God's Word. An eagerness to do the right thing. Titus has been telling me about that. Paul writes of them, not only does he see this eagerness, but this is what comforts Paul. Paul sees the genuineness of their repentance. See, when godly grief brings repentance, it produces salvation that none of us regrets, but it causes this earnestness of desire to serve the Lord. You know what that does? Husband, that comforts your wife. You know what that wife does, wife? That comforts your husband. You know what that does? Children, when you follow the Lord, that gives your parents great comfort. You know what it is? Gives to your children, parents? Gives them great comfort to see you following the Lord. With an earnestness, with an eagerness. Not with a lethargy, not with an idleness, not with a, oh, well, it really doesn't matter. No, it does matter. It does matter how I live from day to day. It does matter how you live from day to day. Because how we live proves the genuineness of the repentance 
that is in our hearts. That's why Paul could conclude this section by saying, I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. I have assurance of your salvation. I know you're safe, Paul is saying, because I see the fruit of repentance in your heart and in your life. And that brings comfort and joy. Who are you comforting? Who are you bringing joy to today? Does your family know you're a believer in Jesus Christ? Does your family know that you repent of your sin? But it's truly godly grief and that you're looking only to Jesus Christ. How do they know that? Just because you're here? Just because you come to church? Saul was amongst the worshipers. Just being here doesn't tell your children that you repent and that you look to Christ. Children, what comfort have you given to your parents? Do they know? Do they know? Do they have the confidence of knowing that you are indeed a child of God because you have repented with godly grief and have turned and gone to Bethlehem to embrace the one who is Christ the Lord? God's word tells us today is the day of salvation. But today is also the day for us to acknowledge our salvation. Tell your loved ones, tell your family, tell your co-workers. I've gone to Bethlehem. It's there I find my Savior. Because I need a Savior. Because I am a sinner. Saved. By grace. Amen? Amen. Father, again, we thank you for your word. May it indeed bring comfort and hope and peace to our hearts and to our lives. May this day not pass, Lord, without making it clear to family, to friends, to husband, to wife, to children, to parents, that Christmas is more than just a celebration. It's our call to repentance and faith in our Savior Jesus Christ. And we openly confess and acknowledge that truth. In His name, God's people say, Amen.